From 230 Euclid Avenue, I'm Mariah Humiston, and this is the Daily Orange Podcast. Today, online classes fail to accommodate students with disabilities. Mark Zuckerberg, the unlikely supporter of the Onondaga County Board of Elections, and how SUNY ESF is helping one snail species on the slow road to recovery. It's Tuesday, October 20th, 2020. There's two categories of issues, I'd say. And I think the most obvious change from before the pandemic to after the pandemic is technical stuff. So the issues that come with using online platforms and having online classes themselves. So people who have visual or hearing impairments, not being able to adequately use a site like Blackboard, which isn't always incredibly accessible, or not being able to have class captioned if it's on Zoom or something like that. So there's that set of really like technical, practical issues. And then one of the issues that seems to persist, maybe the pandemic's just kind of brought that to the foreground, is dealing with professors and getting accommodations that you actually need when perhaps those accommodations don't rise to the level of being documented. So a lot of the people I talked to said they've faced pushback from professors before the pandemic and after the pandemic started when asking for accommodations, especially when it had to do with something like a mental health problem or emotional need that maybe aren't seen as a disability by some professors in the same way as a physical disability. I'm Michael Sessa and I'm assistant news editor. Who is Eli Blodgett, and what did they have to say about online classes? Eli is one of the students I talk to, and they're in a situation where they have both physical and neurological disabilities. They brought up the point that the pandemic has made it more challenging, I guess, to start those conversations about accommodations with professors. So some of the professors that they've worked with in the past and, you know, have formed a relationship with have been really accommodating, but it's been harder to sort of spur those relationships and have those sometimes deep personal conversations with professors you don't really know other than seeing them through a Zoom screen once or twice a week. So I think that's been a challenge definitely for a lot of students. How are professors, as Eli puts it, reluctant to provide accommodations this semester? I think there's a few aspects of that that came up. One is perhaps just an unwillingness. So though probably a small cohort of professors, there are some who are just not inclined to provide accommodations. And there could be a variety of reasons for that. But there are also a lot of professors who probably do, but just aren't equipped to make those accommodations, whether that be knowledge or or the tools to actually make it happen. So a lot of people brought up bringing to a professor's knowledge some disability-related need that might sound a little unorthodox. So uh, one of the other folks I talked to was Stephanie Hilliard, who's a PhD student. They're done with their coursework now, and now they're just instructing But they talked about when they were a student needing to listen to music when they took tests and other things like that. And it was challenging to negotiate that with professors because not all professors 
had a knowledge of accessibility and disability that would allow for that sort of accommodation. What is the Center for Disability Services doing for students to help out? I spoke to folks from the center uh, back in March and April, and then again now, and I think they've taken a number of steps to sort of accommodate these strange virtual situations, but a lot has remained the same. So they're still seeing students, they're still meeting with students, and the number of students they serve has remained pretty steady, even despite decreased enrollment this semester. But there are programming has shifted primarily online. So they're meeting with students online, their counselors and other staff members are all talking to students via Zoom, but they've worked out different solutions and cases where that's not possible. So some students are just really exhausted by being online all day. So they've met outside with students to discuss their needs. And some of the folks I talked to from the center also talked about progress they've made since the spring semester, actually having the time to to do the research and see what tools work best for students. So they've made progress in terms of finding out what like online systems, what captioning tools, stuff like that, which ones of those work best with which platforms and, and which students like the best. Have any professors adjusted their courses to accommodate students? And if so, how have they done that? So we heard from some students that some professors have, and in some cases it's fairly informal stuff. So maybe just being a little more flexible with due dates or something, or just flexible in class conversation than a professor would normally be. And then some instructors have also taken some more like substantive measures. So Hilliard, for example, eliminated late penalties on assignments in their classes because they were getting so many requests and it was creating stress and they figured they could just alleviate that right off the bat by just not having late penalties for assignments and just working with students to to come up with a deadline that works for them. So I think students have said they've seen some level of that from a lot of professors and especially from instructors who are graduate students or PhD students. What has the pandemic done to classrooms and instructors to look at how they are set up? The theme I heard was that most of the problems that students have with accessibility during the pandemic are issues that existed with accessibility at Syracuse before the pandemic. So as with many problems, the pandemic doesn't necessarily create the problem, but it it exacerbates it, it brings it to the surface, it, it kind of brings it into the light. And so I think the main thing that the pandemic has, has shown people is that there really are a lot of obstacles for folks with disabilities already in classrooms at Syracuse. And a lot of times those problems aren't necessarily products of a system or, or precise policies, but the way people interact within those policies. So professors, for example, not having the tools or knowledge or, or incentive to accommodate students, speaking to a more systemic problem at Syracuse. What else does Eli say professors can do to help students with disabilities? Well, I think Eli speaks for a lot of students and a lot of students agreed with their points. 
that first of all, professors should just be compassionate and accepting of what students come forward and disclose. In many of these cases, students are coming forward with personal information. You know, they're being vulnerable in front of you. And that's showing commitment to class on their part. And professors should respond accordingly. So rather than provide pushback or immediately, you know, start asking tough questions, the response should really be more gracious and compassionate. And then the professor should do the work of finding out how to accommodate that situation and and then having a discussion with the students about what solutions would work best. You spoke to an instructor that touched on this importance of communication with students. What did the instructor you spoke to say about the importance of working relationships between students and professors during this time? This is also a theme that came up a lot. Professors and instructors are under an incredible amount of stress, just as students are. And they were very careful to point out that in most cases, students are under more stress, especially students who have a disability, but that being under stress isn't an excuse not to perform your obligation to students. So instructors have an obligation to make sure students can learn, and it's their responsibility to take down obstacles that prevent that learning from happening. And the way to do that is to be compassionate and be gracious and actually forge relationships with the students who are asking for for help. I think the quote they used was about stumbling through this, this crisis and you can stumble through it alone or you could stumble through it together. So everyone's going to make mistakes and there should be kind of this mutual understanding between students, professors, and instructors that everyone's sort of in uncharted territory, but that they could still uphold their obligations and help each other out amid the chaos. Michael Sessa is an assistant news editor at the Daily Orange. You can read his story. Students with disabilities are still facing obstacles in online classes on the Daily Orange website. Michael, as always, thank you so much for your time. Of course. Thanks for having me. Hey. If you want to support great stories like the one you just heard, donate to the Daily Orange or join our membership program. As a nonprofit, every donation matters. To help, go to dailyorange.com/donate. Well, the organization that is helping to fund the Onondaga County Board of Elections this year, the organization that gave them $280,000 to cover budget deficits ahead of the general election was an organization called the Center for Tech and Civic Life. But where it really gets interesting is the person who's funding them and the person who's funding the grant they gave to Onondaga County is Mark Zuckerberg, CEO of Facebook. I'm Chris Evansteel and I'm the news editor for the Daily Orange. So Chris, what are the specifics about this funding and how is the Onondaga County Board of Elections thinking about it? So this funding, it's a $280,000 grant from the Center for Tech and Civic Life. And from what I heard from Dustin Zarni, who is one of the commissioners of the Onondaga County Board of Elections, is that it's not much more complicated than that. It's a reimbursement grant, meaning that the 
board is able to spend up to $280,000 and expect to be reimbursed in full by the organization. But aside from that, there's not many other rules on how the Board of Elections can spend this money. It has very few, if any, sort of restrictions on it. So it's very open-ended as far as what the board can spend that money on. Right now, their biggest priorities are covering extra staff and extra postage to sort of accommodate the surge in absentee ballots as expected for this election. But the terms of the grant otherwise are very loose. You mentioned this a little bit earlier, but what is the Center for Tech and Civic Life, and why are they giving out these funds? So the Center for Tech and Civic Life is an organization that does a few things. According to their name, and I guess they're their own self-description, they are an organization that wants to use tech and data to sort of expand and protect democratic processes like the election. They provide some organizations with data about voters to help them sort of prepare for the election. They they serve a lot of, of different functions, but they are fairly, you know, well-known. They've seemed like they've been in the business for a while. So what they are is, is sort of amorphous, but one of the big functions they've been carrying out this year has been securing and providing these grants to local boards of elections to make up for a seemingly lack of federal funding to accommodate what is going to be a very expensive election compared to previous years due to the surge in absentee balloting. It all boils down to the Center for Tech and and Civic Life is as a, a private entity that at least purports to want to support, you know, democracy, they are stepping in to fund an election, whereas the federal government has not. Why did the Onondaga County Board of Elections need this money? I think they needed the same reason every Board of Elections needs it right now, and that's because this election is carrying with it expenses that these organizations and the, the whatever budget offices allocate them funds did not predict. No one predicted the coronavirus pandemic, and no one predicted that it would lead to a surge in, in absentee balloting, which does lead to an increase of costs for the Boards of Elections. And right now, these boards are doing everything they can to sort of recuperate those funds to be able to cover that budget shortfall. And since, you know, the federal government, in some cases, the state governments have, and to use the words of of Dustin Zarni, have abdicated that responsibility to provide those additional funds, these boards of elections have gone to these alternate sources of funding in the case of New York State, actually the local boards of elections were instructed to by the state board of elections to seek funding from the Center for Tech and Civic Life. So it was a state government entity instructing another government entity to go to a private entity for money. So explain that to me a little more. What did the New York State Board of Elections encourage boards across the state to do with this funding? So the State Board of Elections didn't encourage them to do anything with the funding beyond what the funding already stipulated, which was just use it to cover your budget shortfalls ahead of the election. But it's interesting, the state essentially recognized in telling the boards to secure this funding from the Center for Tech and Civic Life that they were not going to be able to provide and the federal government was not going to choose to provide the local boards with the money they needed to carry out sort of the most fundamental part of democracy, voting. And 
in response, the boards have essentially realized that we have to do whatever is necessary. Short of a, a very clear and deliberate conflict of interest, we have to do what we can to serve the taxpayers and fund this election as best we can. So what can the board do with this grant? As I mentioned, it's fairly open-ended. The Onondaga County Board of Elections in specific is looking at paying extra staff, paying overtime, since it's going to take a lot more time for uh, volunteers and paid staff to you know, count these ballots this year and to process so many absentee ballots. They are looking to pay for postage, which might seem like a small expense, but they are going to be dealing with a lot of mail, obviously dealing with mail-in ballots. And they're also looking at long-term expenses, things they can cover for themselves, you know, purchases they can make that will help them in the long term. They're looking at buying a new van, which is just like equipment they need to transport things between polling places. And when I asked Dustin Zarni, you know, is, is this just supposed to cover this election? And he said, it's not clear, but they have $280,000 and Zarni made clear they intend to spend every dime of it. You spoke with a Syracuse professor who researches social media and disinformation. What did they think about this grant and why it was created? So Dustin Zarni told me that he didn't think there was much political calculus behind this grant. It just seems like it was an organization that cares about promoting elections and trying to find a way to leverage tech to protect fair elections. But as I mentioned, where it gets complicated is the fact that Mark Zuckerberg is the one who gave the money that financed these particular grants that the Onondaga County Board of Elections, along with dozens of other boards of elections across the state and across the country, have received. And Professor Jen Greigel, who is a professor in Newhouse that studies social media and social media companies, they told me that it seems like Mark Zuckerberg might be trying to use this grant to reach his own political ends. The example Greigel gave me is when Facebook rolled out on its platform sort of a voter registration campaign, even if it didn't look like they were telling any particular person to vote for any particular candidate, by using their platforms to promote voter registration, they're naturally going to register more voters who are tech users, who are users of of Facebook and Instagram, which is another one of Facebook's apps. And as a result, they more tech-friendly candidates may, you know, wind up in office. Facebook, like many other tech companies, lobbies the federal government, especially for sort of lax regulations on tech and on social media. We've seen Facebook come under immense scrutiny for their roles in elections. So Greigel, what they believe is that Zuckerberg is through these grants, and especially since it's very nebulous how the Center for Tech and Civic Life allocates how much funds, like how much they give to each board of elections is very unclear. Greigel believes that there may be some motivation in who they are enabling to vote, because obviously the more money each county receives, the better equipped they are to handle more voters. And in the end, that may affect the ballots that are counted on election day. Now, what did the Center of Tech and Civic Life's website say about the grant? The Center for Tech and Civic Life simply said it's a grant that, you know, different boards can apply for. Anyone who oversees an election jurisdiction can apply for the grant. All it sort of said was that it's going to cover budget shortfalls related to the election. There were very few, if any, restrictions on it besides that. 
And the other thing that they noted on their website was that they allocated grants by population size or by expected voter turnout, which is important to note because it's the closest thing we have to an approximation of what formula they use to allocate those grants. But we don't have the data from enough counties to empirically say, yes, they've followed that formula to the letter. You mentioned this earlier when you were talking about your conversation with Professor Greigel, but what else could Zuckerberg's commitment to the center represent? Another person I spoke to was Sarah Bolden, who is a third-year PhD student in the iSchool, who is studying, among other things, social media disinformation and the relationship between social media and political candidates. And what she pointed out to me is that, again, Mark Zuckerberg has come under immense scrutiny for sort of his role in purveying disinformation through his platform, or through his platforms, but Facebook obviously being the main culprit in, in spreading disinformation on the internet. And what Sarah believes is that this move by Mark Zuckerberg, short of being a nefarious attempt to get the people he wants to vote to vote, is more just a PR move to save face after being accused of sort of so much wrongdoing and so much interference in the election. He wants to now give money, 2.5 million of it was the the amount that he gave to the Center for Tech and Civic Life, to make it appear as though, you know, he is supporting, with his own dollars, free and fair elections. And finally, what is the impact of this money going to be for elections in Onondaga County? So there's the short-term and then there's the long-term impact. And the short-term impact is that probably we're going to be a bit better equipped to handle this election. One thing Dustin Zarni noted to me, and I think it's important to note, is that $280,000 is not going to make or break the Board of Elections' ability to administer fair and adequate elections in Onondaga County. But it is certainly going to help. It's going to cover budget shortfalls. It might result in slightly shorter lines or the ballots getting counted a little bit quicker or a little bit more efficiently. Um, so in the end, it, it's going to have you know a positive impact on the county's ability to hold these elections. And I think that's what Dustin Zarney was getting at, regardless of the motivations behind this grant, as nebulous as they may be, in the end, it's still going to help the county board of elections do what is its most essential job and administer free and fair and ex- expedient elections. But the long-term impacts, I think, are slightly more concerning. And I think Speaking to Professor Greigel and Sarah Bolden, they agreed that the more concerning part is what happens if, in the absence of federal funding, in the absence of federal support for free and fair elections, it becomes normal for boards of elections to turn to private entities like the Center for Tech and Civic Life, which, as we've seen, is somewhat mysterious in its motivations to support the most essential function of our democracy. Any private entity especially one funded by tech companies. The Center for Tech and Civic Life is also funded by Google as well as Mark Zuckerberg, though these particular grants were funded by Zuckerberg. So having private entities with very clear political and lobbying interests funding elections will result in, you know, some conflicts of interest in the future if that continues. And I think that's concerning for a lot of people who want to see elections remain free and fair and want to keep private companies, especially those like Facebook accused of wrongdoing, out of our elections. 
Chris Hippensteel is the news editor at the Daily Orange. You can read his story, Mark Zuckerberg-backed foundation helps fund Onondaga County elections on the Daily Orange website. Chris, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for having me. So, as I was told, you know, the snails live just in the vicinity of this one waterfall. So they're very attuned to the flow of the waterfall because it's right there. And three years ago, there was this big flooding event that basically overflowed the deluge of the waterfall, like the Bible flood, you know, the entire world just kind of got washed away for these little guys. I'm Mary Rand. I'm a contributing writer for the Daily Orange. So the population of these snails was declining because of flooding. What did SUNY ESF decide to do about it? The flooding event was just one in sort of a series of a longer term decline. It was probably, it's like the worst of the most recent things, but SUNY ESF has been running this breeding program where they keep populations of these snails in little terrariums and they breed them together in different generations. And then once they have a sufficient number of the snails in captivity, they take them back out to the state park, to the waterfall and release them to replace and replenish the wild population that's there right now. So you talked a little bit about this breeding program. What is this program's ultimate goal? The first immediate goal is to get 1,000 stable individuals. And what stable basically means is like you can breed 1,000 individuals right now, take them all out and release them. But a sudden increase of 1,000 snails is going to cause catastrophe because they don't know where to eat and everything. So it's a sort of a gradual slope up to 1,000 individuals that the researchers are confident will not die or starve themselves or not find mates. What organizations besides SUNY ESF are helping with this project? Five total organizations. There's the Rosamond Gifford Zoo, which basically does the exact same breeding program as SUNY ESF. It's just sort of like a contingency thing where one, if one goes wrong in one, they have the snails in the other. And then there's the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, which is the federal agency that oversees all endangered species in the country and they are the ones that oversee everybody's work and set the initial target for the thousand individuals and then there's the department of environmental conservation which is a new york state agency that helps everybody else with the permitting process because anytime you have to do anything with wild animals as an organization you need to get approval for it and so they facilitate that and then there's suny esf and i think that's everybody what has been one of the most difficult aspects of this project? So the quirky thing about these snails is that even though they are really small and you'd think they would not have a lot of problems to them, they are very, very picky eaters. One of the problems with starting the captive breeding program was that nobody really knew what they would like to eat. And over time, this graduate student, Cody Gilbertson, discovered that they will eat decaying leaves of both a certain species and a certain level of decay that allows fungus to grow on the leaves. And so if you feed them leaves that are not decayed enough or too decayed or of the wrong species, they just won't eat them. And, you know, if you can't eat, you can't live. So researchers have to spend a lot of time finding these leaves and keeping them so that they are exactly what the snails want. Talk to me about the snails' caregivers. What do they do? So the snails' caregivers, which in the sort of program, they call them the snail blazers, which I find very cute. They spend their time, you know, cleaning the tanks and doing all the normal things you have to do when you keep any kind of animal. And they spend a lot of time, like I said, going out and finding 
leaves in Oakwood Cemetery right here, you know, off campus and in areas in state parks and all sorts of around the area, collecting these leaves, sorting them, tagging them, you know, doing all this sorts of stuff and then feeding them to the snails. And so for your story, you talked to a lot of these snail blazers. What were they feeling about their part in this project? All of them were very proud of what they were doing, and they all said that it's very, very unique because when we think of endangered species, you don't really think of them as being in New York. They're kind of exotic, but here we are, you know, not too many miles away is this really threatened, endangered, and really unique species. So they they were very honored that they would be able to, you know, help save and protect this really unique, underrepresented species. And so, Mary, what happens when it's time for the snails to finally be released? In the lab where they keep all the snails, they go through and they find, they sort them by generation, and they find the ones that are looking, you know, healthy. They collect them, store them, transport them out to Chittenango State Park, and then they said in pairs or maybe triplets, they find little areas for them to go that are near food or near the water or near other snails and then just release them. And then separately, they will come back and they will tag some of the snails with like a little number and then they will let them go again and then come back later and see how many of those tag snails they can find, which is what they use to determine how many snails there currently are. Are these snails now completely safe because of this program or is there a possibility that they could still be in danger? Nothing is completely safe and the setback three years ago with the flooding is an example of that because the trend was going up and then they had that they had the flood. It's a constant struggle to bring the numbers up. They describe that there's a big problem that people will just literally step on them because they're very small and people like to, you know, walk around the area. It's a popular state park. So that's a constant threat. Plus water is a constant threat because if anything goes wrong with the water quality in the falls, the snails can be threatened. And then literally rocks can fall on them. There's all sorts of things that you can do a lot to sort of control, but you can't ever like get rid of. So it's a tenuous position. And what the researchers expressed to me was that they were sort of unsure, but they were all optimistic in their ability to ultimately prevail. And finally, where can people go if they are interested in this project to learn more or maybe to get involved? So first, it would be the Snail Blazers Facebook page. If people are interested in donating, I was told that they could donate to the Friends of the Rosamond Gifford Zoo, and you can specifically indicate that you want your money to go towards the snail project, or Critz Farms in Casanova is doing this thing where they're selling snail ale beer, and proceeds from that can also go towards the project, and that money will support extra cost for like the student helpers who feed the snails, or just like little lab equipment that they need, you know, anything is... They told, I was told it was really appreciated. Mary Rand is a SUNY ESF beat writer at The Daily Orange. You can read her story, SUNY ESF Snail Breeding Program Aims to Restore Species, on The Daily Orange website. Mary, thank you so much for all of this information and your time. A special thank you to Michael, Chris, and Mary. Thanks executive producer and podcast editor Elizabeth Kama and to our producers Kylie Herlehy, Abby Fritz, and Adam Garrity. Thank you for listening and we'll see you next Tuesday.